0: Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman Family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 104, The Open Door Project. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson.
1: And I'm Lex Rothberg.
0: And our guest today is George Wilichowski. He is a graduate of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and is the founding director of the Open Door Project, which is a project under the auspices of Moisha House, the organization whose founder, David Siegelman, we interviewed early on in the history of this podcast and that we've talked about quite a few times over the course of the, the two years that the podcast has been going. Remember that Moshe House is an organization that's basically about subsidizing the rent of young Jewish adults who, in return, create Jewish programming in their homes. It's added various elements over the years that help those folks who are living in the houses learn more about Judaism and find their Jewish voice, etc., The Open Door Project is something of a departure from Moisha House's existing model, and it's really fascinating to get into the question of why it is that they're launching this program. The Open Door Project basically is an incubator, supporter, it creates community, gives funding, consulting organizational help to a number of spiritual entrepreneurs who are trying to get a new kind of Jewish spiritual organization off the ground. We're really excited that over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking with the four members of the Open Door Project's first cohort. The Open Door Project is currently in the process of seeking out its second cohort, The project has been up and running for about a year already, and it's really quite a fascinating initiative. We're really looking forward to getting into the details about it with George and to hearing about the particular organizations with their founders in the weeks ahead. George Willachowski also has a fascinating personal story that we're going to get into in this conversation. Thank you so much for being with us, George, and welcome to Judaism Unbound.
2: Thanks, Dan. I really appreciate it.
0: I was wondering if you could just give us a little bit of a sense of what the Open Door Project is, and then we'll go into sort of more. I think sort of how it happened.
2: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I I remember um, just briefly. I, I remember listening to that podcast uh, when I was trying to get to know who David was. It was a it was kind of a, an awesome, an awesome <laughs> way to uh, you know, besides talking to him all the time, an awesome way to to get a sense of his his passions and how he came about his work. So uh, yeah, so look, the Open Door Project is really at its heart, it's a, it's a learning community. What we tried to do in working with David was to envision what it would look like uh, to create a small and intimate community where entrepreneurial rabbis and cantors, and I think eventually spiritual leaders of all stripes, but um, we're spiritual leaders who were trying to build, break the box models of what it means to be in community. Uh, what it means to have lives infused and inspired by Jewish spirituality, a community where the folks that were doing that really brave and I think still marginal work could come together, get very significant investment in their projects, equally as important as that significant investment, get a space where they could... Be themselves with peers, you know, where they could be who they are with peers and uh, struggle together in the early days of starting something up from scratch. Um, that was really the the key. That was the white paper that David, you know, sent me when we first started talking about this. Um, could a community like that be created um, where these folks could again get the funding, but more uh, probably equally importantly, get the community of practice that made them feel like a they weren't alone. And that B, they were going to build a, a kehilah, their own community, right? Their own sacred community around doing this work. And I think that I'm lucky enough to now have this amazing gig where I I kind of look around the country <laughs> and try to find the disgruntled dreamers that are hopeful, not knowing the ledge they just have stepped off of, right? Not knowing if their foot's going to be, is going to meet solid ground or not. Um, and that's a, that is a place that is spiritually scary it's emotionally scary it takes a certain kind of brave person and also because of the kind of you're putting yourself out there Um, and so that requires i think community and have you get a sense that you're not you're not doing this work alone we have a sense in the jewish world sometimes that the less connected are the margins i would argue that they're the majority and so the folks who who are Supposedly doing marginal work, or actually working to serve the largest majority in Jewish life.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's a really important point, and I mean, it's it, maybe it's a better thesis statement of our podcast than like one that we could come up with. Um, so <laughs> I appreciate you. that, but I, I want like I want to get a little deeper because um, there's some pieces you've brought up so far that are really interesting to me. One is this word bravery that is that is popping up, and I, I like I'd love to hear from you a little bit more on that front. Like what what is so you've said people are putting themselves out there what what is so challenging about this and what are the like particular concrete kinds of risks that people are taking as they create these micro communities and also since we've been talking a little bit abstractly so far like what what kinds of communities are these like what what does this look like in comparison to what we might think of as more normative or mainstream kinds of jewish communities if that makes sense
2: in terms of the bravery I think that the, the deepest spiritual connection comes from, you know, finding yourself that teacher. And I think that what I've seen of the many, many rabbis I've spoken to uh, in doing this work—you know, we spoke to nearly sixty rabbis before we launched the program. Um, just in this application, this current application cycle alone, we've uh, spoken to probably another thirty new voices, um, new entrepreneurial voices out there. Um, and what I've seen is that they're ultimately teaching themselves, meaning that I, I had um, in rabbinical school, Rabbi Sara Lev, um, who is just an inspiring and amazing teacher, said to me once, all you ever really teach is yourself. The four entrepreneurial rabbis that Open Doors partnered with in the first cohort um, have to give everything about their approach to Jewish life to the world. And that's not something we all have to do all the time, right? Uh, You have a certain tradition or a certain minhag, you know, something, a a repeated tradition in your life that you keep that uh, has a Jewish framework on it. And um, you don't have to explain that to anybody. Yeah. Whether whether it's halachically oriented or not, or whether you take a super mindful approach to it or not, or whether you just do it, and that's just the way it is. Like, you don't have to explain it to anybody. These teachers... Um, have taken something that's grown in them, inside of them personally, and manifested it in the world, for instance. So now there's the context, right? So so imagine, but I just want you to imagine that for a second, like taking your deepest held spiritual and emotional self and beliefs and lived experiences, and, and putting that out in the world and thinking that that has value for others. It's like an artist, right, who puts their first piece of written word art out there, their first sculpture, their first painting. It's it's brutal in some ways. Um, and and but it's also to do it, you have to be brave enough to say, I do have something to give the world. We didn't know what that bravery was going to look like, frankly, when we started the open door project. We knew that there were, we were inspired by the Gen, right? The Jewish Emergent Network. And um, these are seven communities spread around the country uh, the oldest of which is, I think, fourteen years old, and um, the youngest of which maybe is a half a decade old, or maybe a little less.
1: A couple of them, for those who've been listening for a while, the kitchen, who we spoke to early on, and uh, Labshul are two of are two of the ones that are part of that that we've spoken to.
2: So the the context uh, for all of this is to say that we had this proof of concept out there, or these proofs of concept, that you could go out there, you could build something that was in some of these models, significantly different than a traditional shul or synagogue. Um, And that not only would people come, but they would be just inspired, right? They would would walk through the door and feel something they had not felt in maybe forever. So with that proof of concept out there, but with also the spacing of 5 to 10 to 15 years, since some of those communities had come out, right? We launched last year not knowing what we would see. And then we got uh, to talking more and more to these rabbis that, that eventually applied, and we had 31 applications to first go around. And these folks walked through the door who had broken all the had broken the box for us. And for me, at least, I'll speak for myself again, broken the box for me about what this could look like. So we had eventually our first cohort wound up with these four amazing rabbis, one from your hometown there in Chicago, Rabbi Arya was really just creating, you know. I think her innovation is kind of like, "Hey, we can bring Judaism into your home again, and have every one of your human needs align with a Jewish doorway to meaning, and that's legitimate, and that's enough." So that's that's Rabbi Ari Muffick, Rabbi Adina Allen, and her her life partner and executive director and co founder Jeff Kazowitz up in Berkeley, California, have created an artistic creative expression studio space that blends deep Jewish learning, prayer and ritual uh, with sculpture and creative writing and drawing, uh, fine arts of all kinds. Um, You know, that has everything from regular 20, 30 person crowds showing up at eight in the morning to uh, and I, I was there. I was there one morning, you know, to to celebrate Rosh Chodesh and chant uh, the the beginning of the month, and um, uh, chant some traditional uh, Hallel, some some psalms of uh, of praise, uh, and also do a creative writing experience around what the beginning of the month can mean. Um, and and the place is packed. And the place is packed. And they can go off and lead a a five hundred person uh, high holy days this past this past season. Right, we also have uh, Rabbi Dan Horowitz in Detroit, who, in uh, a community of I think maybe around sixty thousand Jews, you know, has found a way to to move um, the the kind of the spirits and minds of I think it's something like twenty five hundred young uh, Jews and uh, folks who are you know adjacently Jewish. Uh, which is a term I picked up in doing this work, which I love. You know, folks who make their lives um, with and around uh, Jewish people, but might not have that particular identity claim for themselves. Um, And then finally, we have, you know, Rabbi Dan Ain in Brooklyn. Uh, You guys will sit with him soon. You know, um, he's just such a a talented presence, really, is what I had to say. Like, he's got a way of drawing people into deep, deep conversation um, just by his gift of... Of presence um, and spirit when you sit with him in a space and so he's taken this over the, la- over the last many years um, and realized that he could bring together a community of artists and creatives and folks who wouldn't necessarily walk through other doors uh, in Jewish life uh, and give them a space inspired by their what speaks to them you know one of his very popular experiences he brings together uh, pr- folks uh, for something called a Friday Night Jam, where he will make space both for Jewish ritual, meditation, candle lighting, things like that on a Friday night um, to welcome Shabbat, as well as uh, bring in um, popular musicians from the past you know, 10 or 15 years, uh, Lisa Loeb and, and other names that you, you would definitely know, bring them in for a, both a, kind of a music set so you get a bit of spirituality through music, but also a very deep conversation uh, about Lisa's spiritual journey and about how her, you know, Jewish identity infuses her work and 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 how her work is an expression of that in ways that we normally, you know, might not hear. And th- these are the and these are the amazing expressions of community and spirituality that we found right uh, in this search across the country. And I, I'm 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 just amazingly excited to see what's going to happen this year. But the one thing we walked away with is whoa, this is very different. This is very different from uh, what happened with the Jewish emergent network in great ways um, and we feel like you know it's an extension of that really important uh, groundbreaking work that they did to say that Jewish community and Jewish spirituality don't have a single definition so let's figure out what the what the variety and the spectrum definitions are
0: do you think that um what you're describing is kind of um a Kind of going sort of uh, in a in a line of sort of the adjacent possible from the existing institutions. and then the the emergent the Jewish emergent network, those those communities a decade ago or so were sort of operating among people that were sort of, you know, just outside of that circle. And you know, now th- they having succeeded opens up a, an adjacency right next to that circle? Or is it possible that, you're even out even further than that and saying, no, you know, somehow the, the fact of seeing the, the adjacent movement of the emergent network and other innovations opens up the, the realization that we can go far outside of there and, and even take some chances on, on groups that are not in any way adjacent to the
2: existing connected groups. I kind of see it as a cantilevered bridge You know, like a suspension, (laughs) like a suspension bridge that's in the, that's still in the midst of being constructed, right? Where you, they create, there's enough physics and enough hard work that gets you kind of way leaning out over, over an unknown. And so I think that like, and this is again, only my perspective. I'd be really interested to hear how the four rabbis would place themselves on, on that visualization. But, um, you know, I see, you know, folks like Dan Horowitz, let's say in Detroit, who is really adjacent to the the institutional work that's been done in the past, right? So he's maybe a little closer to to the cliff that we're hanging off <laughs> of um, in some in in some architecturally sound <laughs> ways, I hope. Um, <laughs> and then you know we've got Dan Ain, who is in you know, in my opinion, kind of way way out there on that on that Cantilever bridge. Um, you know, in that he is producing an experienced Based community that the Jewish world, you know, kind of sees as programming experiences or educational experiences, but not Judaism, you know. At, but it's the farthest because I think he or maybe you know Ari Mafik is another interesting but different example, right, out there on the edge. And so I think that those two, Ari and, and Dan, and I would say, are kind of out there on that cantilevered bridge, pretty far, challenging us to expand our understanding of the words community and spirituality when they have to carry the weight of the word Jewish.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. Um I don't know, you know. I'm not. I feel like I'm now sort of uh, over my head in terms of physics and engineering. So I'm not even sure exactly what we're talking about with the bridge. But I, I um, am imagining right, sort of almost like coming, like building a bridge. I don't know how bridges are actually built, but you know, coming towards the middle from two directions, and it's a really helpful image for me because I, I think that a lot of the time when we talk about Really out there innovation innovation that's going out to what the people's needs are and what the people's desires are there's often a critique that comes from those on the inside of the institutions that says, you know like you said like things like well well, how is that judaism and and where's the connection and the the expectation is is almost like when you if you're moving in a recognizable way from where we are towards somewhere else, then we can at least follow the track from from here to there. But if you're starting way out there in the world of the people that are so far away, you know, maybe they're not even Jewish. And the, the, the image that I think you're raising that's so helpful to me is saying, you know, and, and a bridge is sort of being built in both directions. And so, you know, until they come and meet in the middle, we don't necessarily recognize it as a single spin. But that's not a reason to deny the possibility that it will become a single spin and then we'll have a lot of, uh, a lot of travel uh, in both directions.
2: If you're inside the institution, sometimes you think it's a bridge to nowhere. You know, I think the difference is when it comes back, Lex, to what we were talking about, like bravery, um, is that these entrepreneurs believe enough to just like leap, right? To 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 build a bridge to somewhere, not knowing where somewhere is. Um, and I, one of the things that it, this question of when is it not Judaism, um, Dan, you know, I it, it, I think you and I have talked about this before. It gets under my skin a little. Um, uh, mostly because I think the answer is it's never not Judaism. Forgive the kind of double negative <laughs> there, but it, it's it's never not Judaism uh, because there has never been a Judaism. There have been a lot of interesting Judaism's. I would probably argue that right now across the country there are a lot of interesting Judaism's being practiced simultaneously. <laughs> right? Um, the, uh, but you know, to think that there is this um, monolithic thing that we are with respect to everyone out there who might not agree, it's to miss one of the fundamental messages of Jewish history.
1: Um, You've done a really good job thus far in the conversation of elevating the people that are doing this work in their local communities. But I'd love to hear, I mean, okay, so they're in Detroit and in Brooklyn and in Berkeley, and they're doing their awesome work. And um, they may or may not be doing that work Without you, um, but certainly by the sound of it, they're doing it more effectively and with with a, with a sense of fellowship and connection to these other communities as a result of what you've started to build with Open Door. So I'd love to hear about like what. So what's Open Door like? What does it look like when you're when you're with these incredible people that have their independent communities, but you're also building this. This something between them. This this shared sort of. I don't know if it's a movement, lowercase M, or if it's a, a and whatever. I, you tell me. Like, w- what does it look like when you're connecting these folks to each other and to create a shared sense of purpose?
2: So it really spans the gamut in terms of just making sure that that they continue to have their their personal spirits refreshed to do the work. Um, and then we have uh, we have joint calls that we share together to kind of bring. Group needs to the fore, or certain trends in, um, because folks talk to each other as well during during you know any given month. So to bring whatever group uh, needs have um, kind of trended to the top that we might be able to help with, um, and then uh, you know when it comes to the individual support, um, we also. You know, we've become an extension of the team. So we've helped our cohort members uh, do everything from um, hunt down the right fiscal sponsorship to trying to find general liability insurance and the right coverage for the different kinds of programs and experiences that these communities put forward, helping uh, make sure that the communication of their vision is happening at a high level. So if we can help, um, you know, get a, a web project to the end, Stage or something that they need along those lines in terms of communication, we do that. Um, We help folks uh, research and figure out how to track their metrics. Uh, You know, we live in a world where telling a a data-driven story is important for raising funds. Um, And so, um, I think Jewish spiritual work is a whole other conversation. But I think there's Jewish spiritual work. You know, just doesn't exist without the um, the philanthropic. Support and generosity of so many folks around this country, um, but to be able to tap that, you need to be able to tell a story that's backed up by data. And so we help you know figure that out both with Tobin Belzer's help and also just with learning from each other. Hey, what system are you using? Oh, we're using a a mix of you know Eventbrite and such and such, or we're using a, a standalone system called you know such and such, and 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 that's how you know you uh, get to this place where. At the end of the convening that we had in December, I remember folks saying, "I feel less alone, mostly because I feel like I've got five partners now instead of one right like like that like you guys are invested in my success."
0: I think that what you are talking about in your description is sort- sort of an implicit theory of what's needed right and so you know what are the what are the missing elements? in terms of supporting this kind of work? And, you know, I've heard a bunch, but I'm curious sort of what like you have seen as kind of the driving needs, because obviously there's a need for money and you supply a generous amount of money. There's obviously a, a need for not to be lonely and you're supplying that. You know, what are the other sort of needs that that you think are unmet by almost, you know? Other than you, you know, and almost, and other than the One Eight Foundation, sort of seeing the value in this, like, w- what what would you wish was sort of much more widely recognized, and and let's say Jewish federations each had a open door project kind of operation, like what what would need to be going on there?
2: Well, I mean, look, I mean, you've already said it, and so, but I will say it briefly because it it bears repeating. Entrepreneurs need money, uh, frankly, um, and they need uh, good good portions of it. Um, and mostly they that is the case because it goes all back to the bravery and the risk. There is a position in the entrepreneurial world that says, hey, bootstrapping is good for you. Um, and I think that that's actually very true. There's a point where it, it stops building character and starts destroying promising organizations. And so I think those open doors, those theoretical open door projects or whatever it is they would call them, would have a high risk tolerance. So that's one thing. Um, Is a higher risk tolerance than we currently have. Insider Jewish life designed by insiders for insiders will serve on the insiders. The ability to look outside our traditional portfolios and see dreams worth investing in to help others who aren't like us uh, is something that is a a kind of a foundational uh, launching point for a project like ours. The funny thing is, I've just noticed that I haven't listed anything in particular that is an infrastructure thing, right? What I what I, what I I listed for you so far was the ability to take risk and um, invest in dreams, right? And the ability to send a message to the dreamers that you value their dreams. If they may not be your dreams, they may not be the way you would, you know, sketch a two-dimensional quick sketch of a Jewish spiritual community. It may not be your sketch, but that, you know their 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 sketch and their visions are are adding to an overall an overall moving forward of what Jewish spirit can mean. And then, as you already mentioned, funding is important. Um, you know, investing in the the spiritual, personal, and professional development of each of these profession of these, each of these visionary entrepreneurs is important. But I think it's I think it's the the fundamental cultural perspectives that I first talked about that are probably the the lead changes that need to happen.
0: Well, George, uh, you personally have such an interesting story as to how you got from uh, where you started, both personally and professionally, how you got from there to here. And I'd love it if you could share a little bit of of that story. And I I wonder how it connects to what you're actually doing with all this and and how you have the insight that you do.
2: So how do you become a Hispanic-born Jew by choice? Who becomes a rabbi and then runs a thing like Open Door? <laughs> uh, it's it's a, a long story, as it probably sounds, um, but I'll, I'll try to give you the quick version. So, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, um, and uh, my mom's from Guatemala, and my dad was a first generation American, which is where I get the crazy last name that nobody knows how to pronounce. And so, um, you know, I grew up really for the first like 10 years of my life. In you know a fairly like fairly tough situation as many first generation you know my mom's first right the first gen to, to to immigrate to the U.S. So as many families of of folks who have made that brave choice um, sometimes sometimes have you know where we were my parents um, their their union didn't last very long and um, so my mom was essentially a single mom my entire life uh, with the exception of two or three years and um, you know the first ten years of our life. We lived in, um, in Section 8 housing uh, just just northwest of the uh, county city line in Baltimore. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we had a tough existence uh, going uh, early on. And then my mom did this amazing thing. Uh, she, you know, saved up a ton of money. She's a housekeeper uh, by trade all her life, still, you know, retired a housekeeper just a little bit ago to Florida. Um, so she's interested in living, living a vicarious Jewish dream. Uh, even though she mostly, she, oh, even though she mostly helped keep Jewish houses clean all those years, um, but now she's uh, you know hanging out with the same folks in Florida. So she uh, saved all her money, and she moved us to a Jewish neighborhood. In the middle of the year, she moved us to. She didn't know it was an all Jewish neighborhood. All she knew was she had bought the nicest, smallest house in a nice neighborhood. You know, and a great school district, that kind of thing. And and instantly, all of my friends and social circles were you know were Jewish. I uh, dated only Jewish girls. Uh, I did the, you know, the B'nai Mitzvah circuit when the time came. As the years progressed, um, but most importantly, I was invited into Jewish homes. Shabbat happened, and Pesach Seder's happened, and got exposed to this these amazing models of life and community. That for me, and uh, you know, growing up in a single parent household where my mom was uh, always out, and thankfully so. I don't want to say this. This is, you know, my mom is like one of my heroes, but. Thankfully, always out making sure we had food and, and shelter and all, all the basic needs covered. These were family models that from the outside, every Jewish family was like the family from the Incredibles. <laughs> you know, they all they all had like special powers, <laughs> just that, you know, they were wonderful, giving, loving people who had this magical thing that they did, right? They like they lit candles at a certain time. And that changed something about the space, or they blessed their kids. Or they like, what was that? They blessed their kid, you know? Or, or they had like this whole set of, it's almost like Harry Potter falling into that world or something, right? Where there's this whole other culture. And, uh, you know, you, you, it's, you get like a magic wand in your set of books and your robes. And But for me, it was, you know, seeing people light Shabbat candles and bless their children and um, sitting on a Passover Seder for the first time. And those things were just, they blew my mind. They blew my mind. And then, you'd go, you know, skip forward to the B'nai Mitzvah season. And I'm sitting in shul for the first time listening to Hebrew. And I laugh like a young, immature kid might, you know, hearing a very guttural language chanted for the first time. And then I started listening. You know, I've been listening, listening ever since. And so fast forward a bunch, a bunch of years, um, I get into uh, the life relationship that would really define me. Um, My wife, Allison, and I meet in our early teens in high school. And we spent all of our formative teenage college years together. Uh, Her dad happens to be the executive director of uh, one of the larger conservative synagogues in the country uh, in Baltimore. Um, And so uh, now even more so, you know, Jewish community becomes a part of my life. So I'm building, I find myself, you know, in volunteer roles, building the first computer lab at, you know, Synagogue XYZ or, you know, sitting at the security desk on weekends, helping out helping out when I need a little, little extra cash or whatever, but also learning the whole time, you know? So the first woman who, you know, taught me how to decode Hebrew letters was part of that community. And eventually the woman who taught me to link Torah was part of that community. And I'm I'm just a kid on the side, you know? I'm not I'm not Jewish. I didn't, I didn't claim any Jewish identity except for the one I was living, right? Like I made no official claims, but I was the 15, 18, you know, 20-year-old who wasn't Jewish, but like kept the Yom Kippur fast, you <laughs> know? And then eventually, there came a time where I didn't want to sit on the sidelines. People always think it was, oh, my relationship with Allison, my wife, right? My now wife had progressed and we were going to get married. Oh, he converted for the wedding. So I began my conversion essay with the sentence, I'm not converting for my wife. I'm not converting for the shul. I'm converting for me. I think embracing spiritual life is an adult thing. Not that the seeds can't be planted when you're young, but I think ultimately you're such a different person by the time that you are eagerly seeking to edify your soul. I think folks who truly, you know, align with a tradition or multiple traditions, uh, tend to find that, that they're, they're more fully formed adults when they do that and when they do it seriously. And so, um, it was, it was, you know, it was my choice. It was my choice and I'm proud of that choice and it's changed the trajectory of my life. And, um, I was a a film and communications major by trade. And so I was, you know, one of the few guys who knew how to cut film on a Steinbeck. If anyone knows what that is out there, it's an old flat table that you used to use for editing traditional film and also could, you know, cut on a Media 100 or an Avid, right? Um, And that was in the days where things were really making transition into digital content. Uh, And so I found myself, you know, straight out of school, both along the way kind of producing some Native digital stuff. I uh, had a a filmmaking partner. I had a, a film in the two thousand one Maryland Film Festival, and um, you know, I became a, a regular uh, producer, both film and, and, and television. Uh, and I wound up working for a digital content startup, and then that transitioned me um, into kind of a sideline in, in another startup in the, in the food business. Believe it or not, that I did for some years. Pattern developed. I was always employee number, you know, sometimes one, one, but mostly on two very early, where it was just a you know, makeshift conference space or a coffee shop trying to bring something to life. And that was my professional journey as my Jewish journey kept going at night. And I would, you know, I would audit Hebrew at the Baltimore Hebrew University, which is the local graduate school in town that focused on Jewish learning, learning, um, go to private tutors for Hebrew, that kind of stuff, continue my study with, uh, with a rabbi mentor and wonderful friend, Rabbi Steve Schwartz um, in Baltimore. Um, and then eventually the two paths came together. There was a moment when, um, it looked like I was going to, you know, make an exit from a, uh, a startup that I was working on, a software startup I was working on and where I said to myself, I don't know if I want to like, you know, I don't want to do that again right now. Um, build, you know, bring something into being from the ground up, um, is such a particularly hard road. It's a wonderful world with lots of rewards, but it's also very difficult and challenging emotionally. So I said, Well, I have this thing for Judaism. Man, I'm good with Latin. Like I can speak fluent Spanish. I'm good with gendered language. I learn languages quickly. And I love, obviously, I love the tradition of the text. So, long story, very long story. My apologies to both <laughs> uh, Long story short, um, those two things came, came together when I um, first sat down with my wife and said, so I'm thinking about doing this crazy thing in my prime earning years. Do you love me enough to do it together? Um, which, luckily, she does. She did, uh, or I guess she does. I hope I applied to rabbinical school and, and was accepted, and that's how a tech executive becomes a rabbi.
1: That's beautiful. I really want to say that before, like, jumping to the next question because I just really appreciate. You sharing your story, but I want to, in in closing, ask a question that sort of comes full circle towards something you alluded to at the very beginning, and it was like a little detail, but I I I noticed it, and I wanted to to approach that before we went, which was you mentioned that um for the time being this is rabbis and cantors, but you know down the line maybe it'll be all all sorts of different kinds of spiritual leaders, and. And I would love to hear more about that Um, because, so, so you are a rabbi and I am, I'm coming at this as somebody in rabbinical school, but I I think that there is a need out there for, so like when I think about those different steps on the, on the, towards the bridge to nowhere that we were talking about, there's like the most adjacent and then there's the Dan Ains and we talked about all that. Like to me, there's like a way out there that's like not even rabbis, just, you know, everyday folks that are throwing around their torah in interesting ways too and like i don't know if that's more distant or more adjacent but it's interesting to me and i guess i'd love to hear from you like what I, it's probably early to even begin to think about this but what what do you think about when you when you consider the idea that there could be more and more of these cohorts coming together and that some of them would not just be rabbis and might be pushing the envelope and pushing the boundaries of what we think of as Jewish authority in ways that, that could be exciting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, because, I, because I walked the path of the traditional methodology towards training, or at least you know, the uh, one of the versions of, of um, traditional rabbinic training in this country. I, I'm really grateful for that experience, right? The, that, that experience was, um, and as I'm sure you can attest to like, one of the most intense and important personal formation experiences, potentially the most important outside of my my life partnership, you know, with my wife Allison. So I don't say what I'm about to say lightly. So all of that being said, and all the asterisks put forward and all that stuff, one of the things that I think that just rabbis in the field know, one of the things that institutions know, one of the things that David Siegelman out when he was doing the research for this project early on, when this was kind of a glint of an idea for him, you know, was that rabbis uh, and cantors, but that folks align themselves with spiritual leaders that, generally speaking, the deepest connections come with spiritual leaders that kind of look and feel close to what they look and feel like. For a while now, the Jewish world was training leaders that either didn't look and feel like you know, the average folks that were trying to sit in the pews or that just couldn't, for whatever reason, couldn't communicate that they that they in fact had the same as I'm sure they did. Of course, the same human needs to be met through this tool that we call Judaism, you know, but that somehow the traditional methodology of how you present and, you know, this idea of rabbis as gatekeepers and rabbis as a certain models of a certain type of life and, and all those ideas that are put forward in your training. I think it was hard to to put forward leaders, frankly, that a changing population would grown past that model where they needed rabbis as posseks, as you know, opinionators of Jewish law or rabbis as um, models of ideal Jewish lives or rabbis, uh, rabbis as uh, uh, gatekeepers of a certain authentic Judaism. You know, I, I feel like our, our people have moved way past that. And and our rabbis haven't. the institutions that train our rabbis haven't. And so that's why I think you see a misalignment now. So this is all to say that other forms of spiritual leadership are doing exceptional, exceptional work right now. And they are frankly bringing connection that many official folks with certain titles either aren't bringing or in some ways, with all respect, Can't bring to this particular group of people, you know this group that is, again defined as less connected or an affiliate or whatever you want to say, but that you know there's a there's a communicator for every person and style, right? And I think that the traditional model of communicator and teacher served a wonderful purpose for a long time, but now the population has moved past that model, and then we're in this space where there's a transition for some rabbis who can make that change. And then frankly, there's an opportunity and an open space for the leaders um, that many of which don't have any titles, which what they do have is a gift of human presence and spirit and they know how to put it forward. Uh, I think we ignore that at our own peril. And I think we'd be foolish to ignore it. Jewish authority, Jewish teachers, Jewish life is rapidly changing and there will be a space and I think a growing and needed space for folks who, who might not carry traditional ordination or titles, um, but who are building communities that are changing people's lives. And if we cut that off, then I don't think we stand for what we think we stand for. Like I said, I was a kid on the outside and somebody said to me it was worth their time to open this wisdom up to me. It's worth our time to embrace new models of teacher and leader and to open up this wisdom as wide as we can. I think we've been scared for a long time that we would be seen as proselytizers or some, you know, all the things that unfortunately have had negative impacts on our communal lives. But back to our beginning, this is a moment to be brave.
1: I love just closing with that call for bravery. Um, it's, it's so important and on so many levels. So thank you. Thank you for joining us for this conversation, George. It's been a really, really good one.
2: Thank you so much. I, I can't tell you how much I'm a, a fan of, of what you guys do. So, Dan, you know how much of a fan you are. I'm thrilled to meet you. Thank you so much for making the time. Really appreciate it.
1: And thanks, of course, also to you out there listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we want to close it out in the same way that we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can head to our website, judaismunbound.com. And last but not least, we always love getting emails at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us financially with either a one-time gift or a monthly recurring donation. And you can go with either of those at judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.